we continue with Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion in 303 Creative LLC, The Ellenists. Picking up with Part 1, Section B, 3 of the opinion. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender LGBT people, no less than anyone else, deserve that dignity and freedom. The movement for LGBT rights and the resulting expansion of state and local laws to secure gender and sexual minorities full and equal enjoyment of publicly available goods and services is the latest chapter of this great American story. LGBT people have existed for all of human history, and as sure as they have existed, others have sought to deny their existence and to exclude them from public life. Those who would subordinate LGBT people have often done so with the backing of law. For most of American history, there were laws criminalizing same-sex intimacy. Gays and lesbians were also prohibited from most government employment, barred from military service, excluded under immigration laws, targeted by police, and burdened in their rights to associate. These policies worked to create and reinforce the belief that gay men and lesbians constituted an inferior class. State-sponsored discrimination was compounded by discrimination in public accommodations, though the two often went hand in hand. The police raided bars looking for gays and lesbians so often that some bars put up signs saying, We do not serve homosexuals. LGBT discrimination in public accommodations has continued well into the 21st century. A social system of discrimination created an environment in which LGBT people were unsafe Who could forget the brutal murder of Matthew Shepard? Matthew was targeted by two men, tortured, tied to a buck fence, and left to die for who he was. Or the Pulse nightclub massacre, the second deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. Rates of violent victimization are still significantly higher for LGBT people, with transgender persons particularly vulnerable to attack. Determined not to live as social outcasts, LGBT people have risen up. The social movement for LGBT rights has been long and complex. But if there ever was an earthquake, it occurred in the final days of June in 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. The Stonewall Inn was a gray bar with a varied and lively clientele. Its unruly element made it an especially inviting target for police raids. Patrons of the Stonewall tended to be young and non-white. Many were drag queens. Just before midnight on June 27th, the New York Police's Public Morals Squad showed up to the bar, and started making arrests. Drag queens, for example, were arrested for offenses like being disguised in unnatural attire. 
What started out as a fairly routine police raid, however, became anything but. Outside the Stonewall Inn, patrons who had been thrown out started to form a crowd. Jeers and catcalls arose from the onlookers when a paddy wagon departed with the bartender, the Stonewall's bouncer, and three drag queens. A few minutes later, an officer attempted to steer the last of the patrons, a lesbian, through the bystanders to a nearby patrol car. When she started to struggle, protests erupted. They lasted into the night and continued into the next. News of the Stonewall protests spread rapidly, and within a year, gay liberation groups had sprung into existence on college campuses and in cities around the nation. From there, the path to LGBT rights has not been quick or easy, nor is it over. Still, change has come. Change in social attitudes, in representation, and in legal institutions. One significant change has been the addition of sexual orientation and gender identity to public accommodations laws. State and local legislatures took note of the failure of such laws to protect LGBT people and in response acted to guarantee them all the privileges of any other member of society. Colorado thus amended its anti-discrimination law in 2008 to prohibit the denial of publicly available goods or services on the basis of sexual orientation. About half of the states now provide such protections. It is unexceptional that they may do so. These are protections taken for granted by most people either because they already have them or do not need them. These are protections against exclusion from an almost limitless number of transactions and endeavors that constitute ordinary civic life in a free society. LGBT people do not seek any special treatment. All they seek is to exist in public, to inhabit public spaces on the same terms and conditions as everyone else. Section C. Yet for as long as public accommodations laws have been around, businesses have sought exemptions from them. The civil rights and women's liberations eras are prominent examples of this. Backlashes to race and sex equality gave rise to legal claims of rights to discriminate, including claims based on First Amendment freedoms of expression and association. This court was unwavering in its rejection of those claims, as invidious discrimination has never been accorded affirmative constitutional protections. In particular, the refusal to deal with or serve a class of people is not an expressive interest protected by the First Amendment. 1. Opponents of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 objected that the law would force business owners to defy their beliefs. They argued that the act would deny them any freedom to speak or to act on the basis of their religious convictions or their deep-rooted preferences for associating or not associating with certain classifications of people. 
Congress rejected those arguments. Title II of the Act, in particular, did not invade rights of privacy or of free association, Congress concluded, because the establishments covered by the law were those regularly held open to the public in general. Having failed to persuade Congress, opponents of Title II turned to the federal courts. In Heart of Atlanta Motel, one of several arguments made by the plaintiff motel owner was that Title II violated his Fifth Amendment due process rights by taking away the personal liberty of an individual to run his business as he sees fit with respect to the selection and service of his customers. This court disagreed, based on a long line of cases, holding that prohibition of racial discrimination in public accommodations did not interfere with personal liberty. In Katzenbach v. McClung, 1964, the owner of Ollie's Barbecue, Ollie McClung, likewise argued that Title II's application to his business violated the personal rights of persons in their personal convictions to deny services to black people. Note that McClung did not refuse to transact with black people. Oh no, he was willing to offer them takeout service at a separate counter. Only integrated table service, you see, violated McClung's core beliefs. So he claimed a constitutional right to offer black people a limited menu of his services. This court rejected that claim, citing its decision in Heart of Atlanta Motel. Next is Newman v. Piggy Park Enterprises, Inc., 1968, in which the owner of a chain of drive-in establishments asserted that requiring him to contribute to racial integration in any way violated the First Amendment by interfering with his religious liberty. Title II could not be applied to his business, he argued, because that would contravene the will of God. The court found this argument patently frivolous. Last but not least is Runyon v. McCrary. 1976, a case the majority studiously avoids. In Runyon, the court confronted the question whether commercially operated schools had a First Amendment right to exclude black children, notwithstanding a federal law against racial discrimination in contracting. The schools in question offered educational services for sale to the general public. They argued that the law, as applied to them, violated their First Amendment rights of freedom of speech and association. The court, however, reasoned that the school's practice of denying educational services to racial minorities was not shielded by the First Amendment, for two reasons. First, the Constitution places no value on discrimination. Second, the government's regulation of conduct did not inhibit the school's ability to teach its preferred ideas or dogma. Requiring the schools to abide by an anti-discrimination law was not the same thing as compelling the schools to express teachings contrary to their sincerely held belief that racial segregation is desirable.
Two, First Amendment rights of expression and association were also raised to challenge laws against sex discrimination. In Roberts v. United States J.C.'s, the United States J.C.'s sought an exemption from Minnesota law that forbids discrimination on the basis of sex in public accommodations. The USJC's was a civic organization, which until then had denied admission to women. The organization alleged that applying the law to require it to include women would violate its members' constitutional rights of free speech and association. The power of the state to change the membership of an organization is inevitably the power to change the way in which it speaks, the JCs argued. Thus, the right of the JCs to decide its own membership was inseparable, in its view, from its ability to freely express itself. This court took a different view. The court held that the application of the Minnesota statute to compel the JCs to accept women did not infringe the organization's First Amendment freedom of expressive association. That was so because the state's public accommodations law did not aim at the suppression of speech and did not distinguish between prohibited and permitted activity on the basis of viewpoint. If the state had applied the law for the purpose of hampering the organization's ability to express its views, that would be a different matter. Instead, the law's purpose was eliminating discrimination and assuring the state's citizens equal access to publicly available goods and services. That goal, the court reasoned, was unrelated to the suppression of expression and plainly serves compelling state interests of the highest order. Justice O'Connor concurred in part and concurred in the judgment. She stressed that the USJC's was a predominantly commercial entity open to the public, and she took the view that there was a First Amendment dichotomy between rights of commercial and expressive association. The state, for example, was free to impose any rational regulation on commercial transactions themselves. A shopkeeper, Justice O'Connor explained, has no constitutional right to deal only with persons of one sex. To wit, the court had just decided in Hishon v. King and Spaulding, 1984, that a law partnership had no constitutional right to discriminate on the basis of sex in violation of Title VII. The law partnership was an act of association. Its services, legal advocacy, were expressive. Indeed, they consisted of speech. So the law firm argued that requiring it to consider a woman for the partnership violated its First Amendment rights of free expression and of commercial association. This court rejected that argument. The application of Title VII did not infringe constitutional rights of expression or association, the court held, because compliance with Title VII did not inhibit the partnership's ability to advocate for certain ideas and beliefs. The court reiterated, Invidious private discrimination, 
has never been accorded affirmative constitutional protections. We've come to the end of part two of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.